ghoulish day to every single one of you. As always, thank you so much for stopping by and making Paranormal Prowlers podcast part of your day. Those tunes, as always, are courtesy of Bobby Mackey, and I'm your host, Tessa Morrow. I want to dedicate this episode to my great aunt who just passed away this morning, and she was a great loving person. She's the one I mentioned a while back that actually got COVID while in the hospital. And she didn't die from COVID. She just died from natural causes. So Aunt Butchie, I love you so much. And I miss you. And I think the world of you. And I know you're reunited with everybody that has gone before you. I'll miss our talks. And just real quick, I want to say that She would often tell me that she would feel her late husband, my sweet Uncle Dick, around. That she would smell him all of a sudden. Just this phantom smell would come out of nowhere. She stopped smoking several years ago. And sometimes she would smell the brand of cigarette he smoked. So just kind of different things like that. So I thought that was kind of neat. It brings me joy to know that they are reunited again. So there we go. Just had to get that out there. This is dedicated to Butchie. And she loved hearing all about my paranormal adventures. She actually helped me come up with the name Paranormal Prowlers over 10 years ago. So she loved all that kind of stuff. She was my biggest fan. So this is to my biggest fan. And I think you're really going to like this episode because it's about Lizzie Borden. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother forty wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father forty-one. While those numbers may be exaggerated in this little rhyme, two people did lose their lives in this most brutal of fashion. August 5th, 1892. Fall River residents woke up... To a startling headliner in their local paper, the Boston Post. The title, it screams, Two Butchered, Appalling Double Murder at Fall River. Andrew Borden and wife hacked to pieces, their heads chopped open. Mysterious murder in broad midday. The Post unearths a clue. And it reads this. The boldest murder in the history of the state. Fiend thought to have lurked in the cellar way and crept upon the victims. Terrible scenes in the Borden house. And it's with the most freshest of minds that they read this article. The introduction to the worst case their town will ever encounter. And it will haunt them for the rest of their days. It reads, Fall River, August 4th. Fall River is today placed upon the criminal annals of Massachusetts, something that scarcely dare be written there before. 
in the midday with his house, which stands upon a leading thoroughfare in the heart of the city, upon to whomsoever might come or go, his family, alert and moving about their household affairs, Andrew J. Borden, one of her leading citizens, and his wife were killed and horribly mutilated. The atrocity was discovered almost immediately, yet the murderer, unseen and unknown, escaped, and at the time of this writing, midnight, no trace or clue of him has been discovered. All the attires of the affair are the most remarkable and startling of character. Appalling to those who learned it at the first, and so far baffling to the authorities, the family of Andrew J. Borden consisted of himself, wife, two daughters, and a maid servant. At half-past ten o'clock, Mr. Borden was lying on the lounge in the sitting-room of his house, having returned from the bank of which he is president. His daughter Lizzie looked into the room from her ironing in the kitchen and asked him, if he had an email for her. He replied that he had not. Lizzie left the house, going upon a chore in the barn, a few steps away. The servant, Bridget Sullivan, had been called downstairs from her work of cleaning the windows in the third story, or attic. She, too, looked in and saw Mr. Borden and returned to the attic. Lizzie remained in the barn some minutes, she judges. During that short interval, this frightful tragedy was enacted in the house. She started to enter the room her father had been, but she was stopped on the threshold by the horror of what she saw. Her father's body was lying on the sofa, his head split fairly in two, blood staining red the clothes, and lying in a great pool upon the floor beneath. Lizzie turned into the passageway and screamed to Bridget to come that father had been murdered. She ran to the door and called Miss Churchill, who lives in the next house, and when Bridget came down, sent her across the street for Dr. Bowen, the family physician, and then, not waiting, ran into the front yard and screamed for him to come quickly. Bridget ran for a Miss Russell, an intimate friend of Miss Borden, residing in the immediate vicinity, and everything was excitement and confusion with them all. Up to this time, the full measure of the tragedy had not become known, but in their frantic and confused excursions through the house, these women came upon the body of Mrs. Borden, lying upon the floor in the spare room on the second story. She was lying upon her face, and as the room was not disarranged and there was no appearance of violence, it was supposed that she had seen the body of her murdered husband, ran up here, and fallen in a faint. Only after the arrival of the officers and Dr. Bowen was it discovered that she, too, in that brief interval, had met the same terrible fate with her husband. The police authorities had been notified, and within 15 minutes after the discovery, they were upon the grounds and had taken charge of the house. What comes next are the bloody and gory and utmost brutal details of the bodies. So if you have youngins close by, 
Unless they like this kind of thing and you're okay with it, you better cover their ears or send them to go get some cookies. Mr. Borden was found lying upon a sofa in the sitting room, a room between the parlor which fronts the street and the kitchen where his daughter had been at work. His head was down on the seat of the sofa, close against the arm, and his body extended diagonally across it, his feet resting upon the floor. His head seemed to be crushed down into the sofa by the force of the blows that had been dealt it. The head had been hacked to pieces so that it could scarcely have been recognizable. The weapon being a heavy hatchet or axe, one blow had cut through the forehead, eye and cheek fairly splitting the face open. Another had cut off the nose. And others of less effect hacked the forehead and cheek. Blood had spurted a little over the sofa and wall as the blows struck, but only then, the flowing being steadily downward over the face and neck and through the sofa to the floor in a rivulet. The newspapers and letters which the man had been reading lay upon the floor as he had dropped them when he probably fell asleep. His good watch was in his pocket. Some money and private papers were undisturbed. A sheet was thrown over this horrible spectacle, and the doctor and officer Doherty went upstairs to see what might be done for Mrs. Borden. She was lying prone upon her face, her arms extended upward, her hair lying matted about her head. The officer touched her and said she was dead. He turned the body over and uttered an exclamation of horror. The top of the head had been crushed in with the blunt end, evidently of the terrible weapon that had been reversed downstairs, and brains and blood fell out upon the floor. And who had done it was a mystery. Daughter and servant had seen no one and heard no sound. Just then, John Morse, a middle-aged man, a visitor in the family who had slept the night before in the spare room where Mrs. Borden's body was found, stepped up to the side door of the house and was stopped by Charles Sawyer, a citizen whose assistance had been called by police posted at this door. Mr. Morse explained that he was a visitor and told what had taken place. "'My God!' he exclaimed. "'What is this? What can this mean?' He was admitted, and has since figured in the incidents about the house and the story of the day. The police, as stated, have taken charge. Assistant Marshal John Fleet remaining on the ground in person. The extras of the police force have been placed on duty chiefly in citizens' clothes. A half dozen arrests have been made, all without throwing a gleam of light upon the mystery. Imagine waking up to this. You wake up. It's a normal day. You know, you're going about your business. You do your morning ritual. Go to the bathroom, shower, brush your teeth, brush your hair. Maybe head down to the kitchen. Get that morning coffee or tea going. Throw some breakfast on the skillet, toaster, whatever. Sit down to read the newspaper. Back then, in 1892 in Fall River, that paper was one cent. You see the gory headliner and your eyes are glued to the paper. Two people brutally axed to death in the safety of their own home and in broad daylight. How can this happen? People die every single day. It's nothing new. But when they are taken in such a cruel matter, it disturbs the living 
It bewilders the soul. Such is the day that article was published. Not only was death at 92 2nd Street, but it was accompanied by murder and committed by a wolf in sheep clothing. Now, the article I just read to you was the introduction to what would be known as the Lizzie Boarding case. At this point, they have no clue of who had done the double murder. They mention Lizzie, but just about what she was doing at the time. Now, just like Madame LaLaurie, some truly believe in her innocence. And many people believe that Lizzie Borden was responsible for the deaths of her father and stepmother. It's no secret that the relationship was very strained between stepmother and stepdaughter. Lizzie would correct anybody who said mother. No. (gasps) Indeed. And she had resentment towards her father. Major resentment. That, of course, doesn't automatically make her the murderer. But there's so many other things and oddities piled against her. And I'm going to get into that in a short while. And if you're one of the people who believe her to truly be innocent, I'd like to hear about it. Why? You know, I'd like to have a conversation maybe with you about it. So hit me up, paranormal.prowlers.podcast at gmail.com. The police were questioning everybody, including the Borden's maid servant, Bridget Sullivan, lovingly known in the household as Maggie. This is what the Magmeister had to say in her statement. I was washing windows most all of the morning and passed in and out of the house continually. At the time, Miss Lizzie came downstairs. I went to one of the upper rooms to finish the window washing. I remained there until Lizzie's cries attracted my attention. Then I came down and went for Dr. Bowen. I never saw anyone enter or leave the house. John Morse, the man who was visiting the Borden house. He was more than just a friend, you guys. This man, John, he was Lizzie and her sister Emma's uncle and Andrew's former brother-in-law, for he is the brother of Andrew's first wife, his late wife, Sarah. John Morse, this is what he had to say to the police. And I find it important because it kind of gives us an inside look of Andrew and Abby's last day alive, when life was so happy and simple, not knowing the nightmarish hell they would soon be dealt. This is what John Morris had to say. My sister Sarah Morris married Andrew Borden in the city of Fall River when both were, as I remember, in their 22nd year. That was 47 years ago. At that time, Mr. Borden was in reduced circumstances and was just beginning to enter business. They lived for years on Ferry Street. They had three children, one of whom died when he was just three or four years old. The others, both girls, grew to a womanhood and are now living. Emma, aged 37, and Lizzie, aged 32. Wednesday, I came here from New Bedford early in the afternoon. I left that city on the 12.35 o'clock train, which arrived here about 1.30 o'clock. I walked from the station to the house and rang the doorbell. Mrs. Borden opened it. She welcomed me and I went in. Andrew was then reclining on the sofa in about the position he was found murdered. 
He looks up and laughs, saying, Hello, John, is that you? Have you been to dinner? I replied in the negative. Mrs. Borden interrupted Mr. Borden, saying, Sit right down, we're just through, and everything is hot on the stove. It won't cost us a mite of trouble. They sat by my side through dinner, and then I told them I was going over to Kirby's stable and get a team to drive over to Luther's. I invited Andrew, but he declined, saying he didn't feel well enough. He asked me to bring some eggs from his farm, which is there located. I returned from the ride around 8.30 o'clock, and we sat up until about 10 o'clock. Then, Mr. Borden showed me to my room. His wife, having previously retired, bade me a good night. That's the last I saw of him until Thursday morning. It was about six o'clock when I got up and had breakfast about an hour later. Then Andrew and I read the papers, and we chatted until about nine o'clock. I'm not positive as to the exact time, and it may have been only 8.45 o'clock. While at the table, I asked Andrew why he did not buy Gould's yacht for $200,000, at which price it was advertised, and he laughed, saying what little good it would do him if he really did have it. John kind of goes about his day as he describes running errands and what have you. He goes from having a normal day to stepping into a world full of bizarre happenings, a true nightmare. Here's the rest of his statement. I held a car going by and rode to 2nd Street, and thence I walked to the house. When I entered the premises, I did not go by the front door. On the contrary, I walked around behind the house and picked up some pears. Then I went in the back door. Bridget then told me that Mr. and Mrs. Borden had been murdered. I opened the sitting room door and found a number of people, including the doctors. I entered, but only glanced once at the body. No, I did not look closely enough to be able to describe it. Then I went upstairs and took a similar hasty view of the dead woman. Everything is confusion, however, and I recall very little of what took place. It must have been so shocking for John Morse. He goes to visit his family. He spends time with them. He visits with them. He's laughing with them. Then hours later, they're hacked to death. While conducting the autopsy for the Bordens, the medical examiner, a Dr. Dolan, in his professional opinion, thinks that death was instantaneous in both cases after they were dealt that first blow. And I would certainly hope so, right? I'm, I'm hoping that maybe Andrew was sleeping on the sofa and maybe he didn't even know what was happening. He was struck 11 blows. We know that's not the case with his wife, Abby. I mean, not the instant death part. I'm hoping that happened for her too, but I'm sure she knew what was happening before her death. The wounds on Abby Borden's head, it's believed she was struck a straight-on blow right on her forehead with the edge of a hatchet. She was face-to-face with a monster of death. She was hit a total of 18 times. Major overkill here, folks. We know that she was killed first, at least one hour 
perhaps even longer, before Andrew. Dr. Bowen noticed that Mr. Borden's body was warm to the touch and that his blood was actually still flowing. Abby, on the other hand, was cold, her body stiff. Rigor already settling in. In fact, when Dr. Bowen arrived to examine Andrew Borden's body, he asked Lizzie where her mother was. She replied, saying she left two hours ago to visit a sick friend. A note had come saying she was sick. So they searched high and low for this telegram. But one was never found. We obviously know this to be false information. So we heard from the brother-in-law, John Morse, and we heard from the maid servant, Bridget Sullivan. The eldest daughter, Emma, at the time she's out of town, I believe in Fairhaven, and ended that trip prematurely after she received a, t- a telegram notifying her about the murders. But what did Lizzie herself have to say? She told the authorities that her father was laying down on the sofa in the sitting room reading his paper. Bridget, she was upstairs, and that Lizzie herself went out to the barn to retrieve some lead sinkers she needed for a fishing trip that she was planning on taking soon. She claims she was gone for a good 20 minutes, and when she came back, her father had already been murdered. She heard nothing. She saw nothing. This is where it kind of gets a little on the dicey side. They lived in the heart of town, where people would have been around in the area. They would have seen someone certainly covered in the victim's blood, leaving the house and entering the busy street of Fall River. So that leaves the back door, which happens to be the view that their neighbor, Mrs. Buffin, has when she often would look out that window. She's an elderly lady who usually would sit down in that chair and that's what she would see, the Borden's back door. She claims that on that day, the only person she saw go through that door was Bridget. And that's when she was running to go get the doctor for help. And even if the perp was able to sneak away without being detected by Mrs. Buffin, he or she would have had to scale a high fence that was topped with barbed wire. To further debunk this route for escape, the fence was caked in dust, and there was no sign of someone climbing over it, disturbing that dust. Now, it's no secret that Andrew Borden was a very wealthy man. You would think that would be a motive for murder, right? Murder for money? We see this happen all the time. Yet money was out in the open and very expensive things were also left alone. No, money or robbery was not the motive. The escape was not from the back and no one saw anything in the front where the street was. And again, it's daytime, people. People are out and about. And besides Andrew's brother-in-law, John Morse, leaving the house to run his errands for the day, and Andrew himself coming home from working at the bank, no one else was seen leaving or entering the Borden estate. So the murderer must have been in that house. That would make sense why no one saw some bloody soul running through Fall River. Because when the deed was done, hey, guess what? They're already home. All they had to do was clean themselves and suddenly walk into a death scene. Oh no, what's happened? 
it had to be someone in that house because who in their right mind would break into a house, murder a person, then hang around for well over an hour, if not longer, and kill another person? Why stay that long, waiting around, not knowing if someone else of the household may walk in or if a neighbor comes by to get something? It's like an episode for dumbest criminals. So many things could go wrong. I just don't see this being the case. Emma Borden, as we know, she's out of town. John Morse, he's in town running errands. He's far away from the house. He has many witnesses to say he was doing just that including sending a letter off at the post office regarding oxen. That leaves Bridget Sullivan, the servant, and Lizzie Borden, Andrew's youngest daughter. The Bordens never had an issue when it came to their servant maid. She was loyal, and it seemed she enjoyed working for such a wealthy, well-known, and much-loved family, and well-respected. Then we have Lizzie Borden herself, and again... As mentioned, she was quite estranged from her stepmother, the only mother she ever really knew. Lizzie mentions that her mother died when she was but two and a half years old. But in articles and everything else that I've seen, her mother died giving birth to her. So kind of unsure which is which. Either way, Lizzie has no recollection of her mother and she admits this. She was very cold with Abby. She never made Abby feel welcome, nor did she ever consider her to be part of the Borden family. It was so bad, you guys, that Lizzie would refuse to even eat a meal with Abby, eating hers separately from the family. 27 years Abby had been her stepmother, and she never accepted it, or her. I looked up court transcripts of the trial and went through pages and pages of it, And I'd like to read just a little bit when it pertains to Abby and Lizzie's relationship. You did not regard her as your mother? Not exactly, no. But she came here when I was very young. Were your relations toward her that of daughter and mother? In some ways it was, and some it was not. In what ways was it? I declined to answer. Why? Because I don't know how to answer that. You guys, she was so estranged from Abby Durfrey Borden that she didn't, she couldn't even think of one positive interaction between them. The night before the murders on August 3rd, Lizzie was visiting with a dear friend, Alice Russell. Lizzie would tell Alice that she felt that she feared that some unidentified enemy of her father's might try to come and kill him. And soon, remember folks, this is the night before the murders. Just hours later, Andrew Borden and Abby Borden would be no more. She was a busy bee that day because earlier on, she went to a local drugstore and unsuccessfully tried to purchase prusic acid better known as hydrogen cyanide. She was unable to get her claws on it as she did not have a prescription. The drugstore clerk said this, I knew her as a Miss Borden. I have known her for some time as Miss Borden, but not as Andrew J. Borden's daughter until that morning. In fact, it was a customer in the shop who remarked, that is Andrew J. Borden's daughter. 
as the woman left. And, you know, it makes sense why the pharmacist would not have a clue that her and Andrew were related. Because in Fall River, around that time in 1892, there were 125 Borden families. Why did Lizzie need hydrogen cyanide? Maybe if she had gotten it, she may have gotten away with it. And we would not even know who the hell Lizzie Borden is, and Fall River would never have been plagued with such a brutal headliner of a crime. Another odd thing that Lizzie did, she burned a dress that had stains on it just days after the murder. I mean, what strange and bizarre behavior indeed. Did this dress connect Lizzie to Andrew and Abby's murder? She claims it was paint stains, but I mean, come on, right after the murder, you decide to burn a dress with supposed paint stains? She could have easily just thrown it away in the trash like a normal human being, or used it for rags or something. And the sounds, how can Lizzie not have heard the sounds? Now, in my opinion, Bridget, she is outside a good part of the time, off and on throughout the day, cleaning the windows. So it may have been harder for her to hear such things. Bridget, however, did tell authorities that she heard coming from upstairs muffled sounds at one point when Bridget was in the house. She said that she believed it to be laughter and she assumed that it was Lizzie. Now, Abby at the time of her death was over 200 pounds and when she fell, it must have made some sounds and getting axed to death, remember, square in the forehead, she saw it coming, you guys. I bet she was screaming to high heaven. And remember, when Lizzie told authorities that she was in the barn for 15 to 20 minutes looking for lead sinkers for a fishing trip, well, when authorities went into the barn, in their words, it was stifling hot. It was in the middle of the summer. It was hard for them to be in there even for a few minutes, let alone 20 minutes. Furthermore, it looks like they caught the youngest Borden in a lie. She claims that she was in the loft, but when they went up to investigate, it was dusty and no footprints were shown. No indication whatsoever that Lizzie, nor anyone else for that matter, stepped foot in that loft for quite some time. And for the trial, during her testimony, her behavior was strange. At times, she would refuse to answer questions. If she was truly innocent, you would think she'd be bending over backwards to help find who did this to her father and stepmother. And she was caught in several lies while on the stand, changing her story several times. I'm a true crime nut, and when I see the person changing their story... I don't know. It kind of screams guilty. So she says that she was in the barn. That was bullshit. Then she says she was in the kitchen reading a magazine when her father came home from the bank. Then at a different time, she said she was in the dining room ironing some clothing. And yet again, she changes it by saying that she was coming down the stairs. And coming down the stairs, Abby was upstairs. So she would have been in the area where Abby was then. So I don't know, which is it, Lizzie? Ironing? Reading? The stairs? The barn? She can't 
keep her story straight. And that's what happens when you lie. You have to memorize the lie or you'll forget what crap spewed out of your mouth to begin with. The truth will set you free or land you in prison. Another lie she told authorities is that she took her father's boots off and put slippers on his feet. But in the crime photographs, you can clearly see that Andrew Borden is wearing his work boots. Why lie about this? Again, just super weird, bizarre behavior. Andrew and Abby's skulls, they were actually removed from their bodies and were used as evidence in the courtroom. When confronted with the heads, Lizzie actually fainted. Lizzie was quite a disturbed person and she never really fit in that well. She was a rebel as well. In 1891, money and jewelry had been stolen from the estate. And it was deeply suspected by many, including some of the family members, that Lizzie herself was behind the theft. And it's odd that she did not go with Bridget to fetch the doctor. Why chance staying in the house alone where murders just occurred? Like your father is laying right there. Why would you want to be close to the body and fear also that, hey, something horrible just took place here. The killer, he might or she might come back or they might still even be there hiding. You would want to kind of just get away as far as possible. But no, it's almost as if Lizzie knew she would be safe. No killers coming back. What did Lizzie do in that house as Bridget fetched help? Did she clean away evidence? We know she burned a dress later on. Did she hide the weapon? A handleless hatchet was found kind of hidden away downstairs in the basement. I think to this day, they still don't know if that was actually the murder weapon or not. Lizzie, as we know, she was found not guilty. And with all the lying, the story changing, the weird behavior, etc., it's just shocking to me. Just days before the trial was to begin, another axe murder occurred in Fall River. A Portuguese immigrant was convicted of that murder. And I can't help but think... Was this one of the reasons why she may have been acquitted? Maybe they thought that this man, hey, maybe he's a serial killer. Maybe he was responsible for Andrew and Abby's death. Who knows? Just speculation, of course. I'm just, you know, saying this, but not guilty, though. That angered many people, and rightfully so. Kind of like a slap in the face. And I literally just slapped my face. That kind of hurt. Many saw it as a miscarriage of justice, that a murderer was free to go and living amongst them. And worse, she stuck around. Look at the Ken and Barbie murders. Carla Homolko was eventually a free woman. Unfortunately, as she should have stayed in prison for the rest of her natural life, considering one of the victims was her younger sister, Carla changed her name, disappeared from sight. But not Miss Lizzie Borden. She did not stay long at the Borden estate. She bought another home that she called Maple Croft. And it is here that she spent the rest of her days. For the rest of her life, many people considered, and still do to this day, 
Lizzie Andrew Borden, the main suspect in the double hatchet murders. She dies due to pneumonia June 1st, 1927. I believe she was 66. Her sister, Emma, would die a little over a week later, June 10th, due to chronic nephritis. They're buried side by side in the family plot at Oak Grove Cemetery. At the time of her death, Lizzie Borden, who, after being acquitted, went by Lizbeth, was a very wealthy woman. She owned a house, several buildings, lavish jewelry, and just oh so much more. Speaking of Maplecroft, I just came about this article. If you're in the market for a fully furnished, gorgeous, historic Queen Anne that's been painstakingly restored, complete with gleaming inlawed parquet floors, and an expansive parlor, look no further than this Manson Fall River, Highlands District. The only catch is that this stunner, where Lizzie Borden lived out the rest of her days after she was acquitted of killing her father and stepmother, is haunted by a little red tape and maybe some paranormal activity. So, anyone in the market for a spooktastic home, you may want to head on over to Fall River, Massachusetts. The price is $890,000. And speaking of on the market, the Borden House which for a long time was a bed and breakfast, has been on the market for quite some time, and it just sold in mid-January of 2021. So just last month for about $2 million. And I hope they really decide to keep it as a bed and breakfast. I don't know what their plans are with it, but I just think it would be a crying shame if it just were like some regular home that somebody was living in. I really hope it stays a bed and breakfast as this place has been on my list of places to go to forever, forever. So after the bloody events that took place here at the Borden Estate, it's no shocker that it's considered to be an extremely haunted location. It's been featured on several paranormal shows, documentaries, and movies. Then, of course, featured in books and magazines and what have you. When you go to stay the night at the bed and breakfast, before it was sold, of course, there is simply no guarantee that you would get a full night of sleep. The employees claim that many a guest have shared that they kept seeing things and hearing things, basically not getting a wink of sleep. Some people wouldn't even make it through the night having such a scary encounter that they would run out with their belongings, ending their stay prematurely and not to be seen again. In those parts, anyway. Don't worry, they're not missing. One of the most active spots in the house is believed to be the guest room where John Morris was staying and where Abby Borden was brutally murdered. And that room is the most requested room. When people stay there, especially paranormal fans, to stay the night, in Abby's room is an absolute must, apparently. While many have had experiences and encounters here, some have also gotten evidence such as good old electronic voice phenomenon, that gold EVPs, baby, and photographic evidence. On more than one occasion, people have caught what looks to be a blue glowing ball of light hovering where Abby's body was found. Cold spots are experienced in the house, 
And people have seen shadowy figures as well. The front door of the house tends to open all by itself. This happens kind of a lot, actually. And the most amazing evidence may be that people have captured on film a woman's face. That face looks very much like the acquitted Lizzie Borden. Now, a week ago on Twitter, I posted a small poll about whether people thought Lizzie Borden was guilty or innocent. Now, not too many people took it, but out of the nine people who did vote, and I thank every single one of you for voting, you rock, out of nine votes, 67% found Lizzie Borden to be guilty. 33% found her to be innocent. And then just this morning, I went on Facebook. And I should have probably done this on Facebook too a week ago, because I probably would have gotten a lot more. But I went on Facebook asking people, you know, was she guilty or innocent? And I had three people respond to that. And I got three guilties. So again, I'm really curious. Do you personally think Lizzie Andrew Borden was guilty or innocent? Again, thank you to those who took the poll and who responded to my Facebook as well. I've always kind of personally believed that she was guilty. I think that with all the things going on, it had to be an inside thing. And she was so deeply disturbed. I think her whole life with the loss of her mother, a mother she never knew, she harbored such hateful, toxic feelings for Abby for almost three decades, a woman she truly despised. You know, she, Abby was hit at least 18 times, possibly 19. That's way overkill, but it was in her face. It was like a fuck you. Boom, 18 times. And it was personal, very close. And with her father, Andrew, she was very estranged from him. She burned the dress. Forget it. I mean, she did so many questionable things before the murders, her quote premonition and trying to buy poison and just things after the murders. I changing her story. Forget about it, man. I just can't see how she is innocent. But again, you know, to each their own. Seriously, what are your thoughts? Hit me up, paranormal.prowlers.podcast at gmail.com. Also tell me if you've had an encounter there or captured evidence. I can read it out loud on a future episode. So again, before I end this, I just want to leave you guys with a cute little story with my sweet great aunt who just passed this morning. And um, it was actually the last day I saw her before she was taken to the hospital and where she remained for a month and a half before today dying. So she was a huge fan of Frank Sinatra. And so I was putting on a song and we were kind of like singing it. I was singing to her and she was kind of just smiling and moving around and I recorded it. So what do you want to do? Well, I think we ought to lay our little heads down and think think a little, uh, catch a little sleep. 
So we could what? Wake up early in the day singing, Luck be a lady. <laughs> How's that? Drop you. <laughs> like I can tell you, first thing in the morning, I will play Luck be a lady for us. Alright. Okay, and I'll play it again right now, okay? Alright. You go to sleep singing it and waking up early in the day. And she was so cute, she kept saying that we need to lay our heads down and go to sleep and we'll wake up first thing early in the morning and sing to Frank Sinatra. And mind you, it was like 6.30 in the evening. So I'm like, um, yeah, I can't sleep this early. <laughs> it was still daylight and everything. So just really, really cute stuff. And um, so anyways, rest in peace, Aunt Butchie. I really, I love you and I miss you already. Did you guys enjoy this week's episode? Yeah. Listen to the others, you guys. They are equally awesome. Haven't heard every single one yet? <laughs> well, I don't think you guys want to go to jail, like my Aunt Butchie just said, so please head on over <laughs> to any of the podcast platforms, such as Podcast Republic, Outcast. Castbox, Deezer, Apple Podcast, Spotify, wherever you may roam to hear your other spine tingling podcasts, you'll probably find Paranormal Prowlers podcast lurking in the background. This week's special city shoutouts go to North Kingstown, Rhode Island, Amsterdam, Netherlands, Garrett, Indiana, Barrington, Illinois, and Zionsville, North Carolina. As always, you all are so truly amazing and I'm so grateful. Like what you hear? Subscribe now, write a review, and we will see you next week.